Namo dasa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa Namo dasa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa Namo dasa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa Buddhang tamang sankhang namasami Welcome to this final uh, Sunday afternoon talk for the Rains Retreat of 2022. So the, uh, the theme for the afternoon's talk today is Sila, a new definition of intelligence. So, uh, as I've uh, mentioned a few times already, I, I don't um, come up with all of the titles for these uh, these talks. Um, I think there was 175 suggestions this year, and I fish through them, and then the, the ones that look most interesting are the ones that I pick out, and this one I felt was a very suitable, uh, useful subject, and also a good one to, to finish the year's uh, say presentations uh, on, since it's a, an area that uh, say can be significant, can impact us all. So uh, we're probably all familiar with the idea of uh, intelligence uh, or IQ, the um, intelligence quotient and ways of measuring a person's cleverness or brightness. Uh, that's been around since the early part of the 20th century, I believe. But uh, in 1995, um, an uh, American psychologist uh, and uh, teacher called Dan Goleman I wrote a book called Emotional Intelligence, and uh, that sent uh, quite a few waves through the American therapeutic and uh, spiritual uh, and self-help realms, um, because it was presenting a, a different way of understanding what we mean by intelligence. And emotional intelligence, uh, if uh, I, uh, I can remember uh, correctly, as Dan Goldman put it, it's to do with how we uh, function as a, a whole being, it's not, as a whole being, it's not just our cleverness or our ability to solve problems, but how we deal with emotional states, how we deal with success and failure, gain and loss, happiness and unhappiness, health and sickness, and, uh, and so on and so forth. So it's uh, taking a more fully integrated perspective uh, on a human life, not just our mental abilities, because probably most of us are, uh, have been familiar, maybe even in our own lives, we've, uh, we've known people who are extremely intelligent, but very, uh, very unhappy or very uh, in, uh, unable to look after themselves socially or very uh, awkward socially or very unhappy, or people who have got very high qualifications, gone off to college and have have, uh, have fallen apart or even attempted suicide or committed suicide, you know, because even though their brilliant mind uh, is uh, something that's uh, very clearly measurable, their uh, sense, their, their discomfort in the world and their inability to deal with uh, aspects of their own being and life around them is something very, very significant. So emotional intelligence as an idea was a very significant impact in the, the late 90s, and I think a very valuable uh, addition to the Western um, 
a uh, uh, understanding of things. Also, I would say Dan Goleman, <coughs> Dan Goleman is uh, one who can speak very much in the language of Western psychology, but it's also something of a um, an undercover Buddhist teaching as well. So, <laughs> even though it's not put into Buddhist or, or spiritual language, I would say a lot of what he was putting forward are very central Buddhist principles about how to understand your mind, understand your character, how to work with uh, emotions and and uh, instincts, feelings, uh, and uh, to live as a more well-rounded person. So uh, with that uh, as the background then, uh, considering how things have evolved since the, the, uh, the late 90s, um, particularly in the Western psychological field and in the, in the Western world. So uh, in, in the early part of, the, of this 21st century, then, um, the uh, um, the subject of mindfulness or the quality of mindfulness has been something that's been seen around much, much more and has had a, a big impact on the world. Uh, around about the time, that, uh, or before that, Dan Goldman had written that book in 1995, John Kabat-Zinn had launched a, a program uh, in the, the, uh, the, the medical center where he worked in Massachusetts uh, called Mindfulness-Based Stress Reduction, MBSR. And that, again, had a very, very big impact. It was a way of presenting, I would say, so Buddhist meditational methods and reflective methods uh, in a Western language and made it very accessible uh, to, to many, many people, very helpful, very effective. Um, and then uh, after a, a number of years of uh, Mindfulness-Based Stress Reduction being available to people, uh, a number of, uh, of folks thought, well, it would be good to be able to develop this quality of mindfulness as a way of dealing particularly with depression and uh, overactive thinking. And so um, uh, there were three um, pe uh, people in particular developed this, uh, what's called mindfulness-based cognitive therapy, uh, MBCT. Uh, Mark Williams, Zindel Siegel, and John Teasdale uh, and this, again, I would say, based thoroughly on Buddhist principles, but put into a language and put into a form that's very accessible and non-partisan, uh, non also not, not in a, a religious or, or sort of classically spiritual language. And uh, I, I like to mention how John Teasdale, who was one of the, the three researchers who developed this, uh, uh, he said that it was really um, the impact of listening to a Dhamma talk by Lumpur Sumato at the Oxford University Buddhist Society when uh, the, when uh, uh, Lumpur Sumato made two particular points about thinking that hit uh, John Teasdale very strongly. Uh, he said, uh, our thoughts are not true, and they're not really ours. <laughs> so John apparently took, uh, took those two principles away from that talk, thought, hmm, how can we weave that into mindfulness-based stress reduction? How can we develop a method that that picks up on those two things, that our, think, our, our thoughts are not true and they're not really who and what we are, they're not really ours. And so that was one of the contributing themes to mindfulness-based cognitive therapy. So, uh, and, and I think it was because of the impact of that particular approach, particularly in treating depression, recurrent depression, that uh, is one of the reasons why we see mindfulness around a lot in the, the world these days. Just to have a little digression into medical history. <laughs> so up until 
about uh, I think 2005 or 2007, um, the if a person had had a, a recurrent experience of depression, like they had periods of depression that had returned, there was a five to ten percent possibility of them be uh, recovering. So 90% of people, 95% of people would continue to have episodes of depression throughout the rest of their life. Uh, only 5% or 10% of people managed to be cured, uh, whether it was through surgery, medication, uh, therapy, psychoanalysis, any, any method whatsoever over the previous 100 years, nothing had worked to uh, counteract uh, recurrent depression in a, a more than five, with a more than 5 to 10% success rate. When they applied this method of, of mindfulness-based cognitive therapy, it had a 50% success rate. So the initial reaction of the academic community was, this can't be right. You, know, you've got, you must have fudged your results, or this, this can't be dependable. This, this, uh, this, is, too, this is a 500% increase uh, of success rate. Yeah, it can't be right. So they, they ran the tests again uh, on a different population of people. The first lot was here in the UK. The second lot was in America, and they got the same results. That's when mindfulness became a big talking point all around the world because this was suddenly something that had seemed to have a powerful effect where other things had not had such a positive effect for many, many years. So then, not to go too deeply into all of that, stay on the subject of sila. <laughs> as a, a new form of in, a new definition for intelligence so then out of uh, mindfulness based cognitive therapy particularly for depression then the mindfulness field expanded and started talking more about compassion and the uh, the, uh, the the ability of mindfulness practices not just to help the individual but how uh, it can uh, support uh, a compassion for yourself and a compassion for other beings so uh, it was uh, something that uh, again publications started to appear um, uh, 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 say 50, 10, 15 years ago roughly <laughs> uh, and uh, so mindfulness and compassion mindfulness based compassion practices were coming into the field so uh, all the way along however <laughs> one of the things that was continually being left out of these mindfulness programs was behavior was sila or, or ethics and uh, I had a number of conversations over the years, particularly with John Kabat-Zinn, but also with others, and asked you, well, why do you leave out sila? Because in, in, you, know, you obviously draw upon Buddhist teachings, Buddhist principles very strongly for the meditation techniques and the background to these methods, and they're so helpful for so many people. How come you leave out the, the aspect of behavior and the effect of our conduct and our actions and speech that has on, on our mind? And it seems that it's, it's very deliberate. It's quite an explicit, uh, uh, deliberate move to leave it out. And it, uh, it seems to be because, uh, this isn't a critique about <laughs> MBSR and so on, but, uh, but uh, it seems be, uh, as you have in Western um, therapeutic methods that the, the therapist or the psychiatrist uh, doesn't, it's not their, it's not their job or, or they're not allowed to make comments about what the person does with their life, how they, uh, how they make a living, 
the decisions that they make on a daily basis. That's not the, the role of the therapist or the psychiatrist to say, you know, you shouldn't be doing this. Or if you, if you didn't do this, you would feel better about yourself. Seemingly, I'm not an expert in the field. Maybe there's a few therapists or psychiatrists here who can <laughs> illuminate. But uh, it seems that it was very deliberately left out of those trainings because of a sense of not uh, uh, being appropriate for a person in a role of a thera uh, therapist or, or doctor or psychiatrist or, or uh, teacher to make comments or, or to say, uh, uh, say make judgments about a person's behavior or make a person feel uh, critical about their, their behavior. So I'll get onto that in a little while. So I, 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 not just myself, but many others have... <laughs> have had a, a, a bit of a difficulty with this, like, but surely it's, it's so connected. It's, it's such a, 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 a related area. Uh, isn't that a bit of a mistake to leave that out? How, how can that be brought in? Uh, because what we have within the, the Buddhist approach is, uh, you would say, uh, in terms of, of these kinds of, of trainings or this kind of intelligence, along with... Uh, regular uh, intellectual intelligence and emotional intelligence uh, what you can call social intelligence or relational intelligence is part of, uh, of what is encouraged in, in Buddhist practice so we would call the development of mindfulness and wisdom how we exist in relationship to the living world to other people to, uh, to animals and uh, to, the, to the, the living planet and to uh, our own sense of well-being so it's a, a what we would call mindfulness and wisdom, in Western psychological terms, you could call a relational intelligence or a social intelligence. How our actions and our, our speech and our attitudes uh, are, uh, say, uh, working together with the environment that, w that we're a part of and the, the, the beings that we share a life with. And so that uh, within the, the Buddhist perspective, then the sila, uh, it plays a, a strong part in supporting and encouraging that quality of social intelligence or relational intelligence, how to live harmoniously, how to live with a quality of self-respect and ease within yourself, how to live effectively and harmoniously in society. And so uh, to me, uh, uh, and, uh, it, it makes, uh, obviously I'm biased, <laughs> being a Buddhist monk, <laughs> it makes perfect sense to, uh, to say, uh, to realize or to consider how uh, it's uh, uh, when we're talking about um, mindfulness-based practices, uh, if it's to do with uh, relating to our thoughts, relating to uh, our own being, if we're talking about compassion and we're talking about how we live in the world and how we are a part of a, of a human group, a human society and part of the, the living world, we depend upon the, uh, the animals and plants and uh, other people of this planet, surely uh, if we are to find a, a way of living peacefully and harmoniously, we have to consider the, uh, the effects uh, of our choices uh, uh, upon the lives of others. That has to be a part of it to me. That has to be a part of it. None of us can live in isolation. And our sense of happiness or well-being necessarily is connected with the well-being of the planet, well-being of other creatures. So uh, to me, there's a, a very uh, so clear message within the Buddha's teachings of understanding the, uh, uh, or developing a quality of empathy 
When we talk about compassion or empathy, empathizing with other living beings and, a, a, and an appreciation of cause and effect. That our actions have consequences, our attitudes and our words, they have consequences. And uh, if we act in a certain, if we act in a way which is dishonest or unkind, there'll be consequences. People will, will mistrust us. <laughs> People will, uh, they will not respect us. If we tell lies or we we harm other beings, then we remember that we've got to. If we tell lies, we've got to remember the lies that we've told. Otherwise, it's difficult to keep keep our <laughs> keep our uh, untruths lined up with each other, right? <laughs> If you tell the truth all the time, you don't have to uh, have to do that. If we're telling lies, we've got to work hard to remember and to sustain the lies, which is which is d- stressful and and difficult and painful. So, in terms of uh, I would say sila as a a new definition of intelligence, I would say that it's uh, that an intelligence that's really beneficial for our lives and for the life of the planet is an intelligence that takes into account uh, cause and effect relationships how one thing affects another in in buddhist language iddapajayata how one thing conditions another and that uh, to to make a, 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 a or to use a definition of intelligence and living intelligently uh, i would say that is really most effective, most helpful, it needs to be that, that uh, element of it, that part of it, which, uh, say, a, uh, includes the appreciation of our actions. If we are kind, if we are harmless, if we are honest, then there, that has certain effects. That brings a, a quality of ease and self-respect within us, and it, it brings a, a beneficial effect to the beings and the people around us. If we are selfish and unkind, if we're destructive or deceitful, that brings certain effects within us and has certain effects on the beings uh, around us. Yeah, we can just see right now in the the the, uh, the war zones uh, of this planet and the incredibly painful, destructive behaviours that people have engaged in. It's right here in our faces in the in the daily news. It's it's you know, almost impossible to avoid. Uh, the, uh, this this aspect of of our lives, so I would say sila as a, a new definition for intelligence and learning, encouraging living intelligently. It's uh, a profound sense or a feeling for uh, for uh, what we what you can call consequential thinking or, or seeing how causes and effects work. Now, in the, in classical Buddhist psychology. Uh, there, there are two qualities, hiri and otapa, that are often talked about as uh, s- central in terms of guiding our, our conduct. So uh, uh, in the, uh, those of you who've walked into the temple today, which is everybody, <laughs> you might have noticed either side of the doors as you came in, on one side of the door there's a devata with a blue surround, and on the other side there's a devata with a, a kind of reddish-pink surround. Those two figures represent Hiri and Otapa. And they are there because Lumpur Sumato requested Pang Chinasai, who was a classical Thai artist. He said, we're going to build this new temple at Amravati, and I'd like to have these images of Hiri and Otapa right by the temple door, so that this is some, uh, these are there for people to be reminded of as they come in the temple. And it's, it's, not, it's not that common for Hiri and Otapa to be 
uh, uh, put into a uh, sort of symbolic form in this way. It's not, but I, I, uh, Lumpur Sumedho had seen that in uh, in other monasteries in Thailand and he, in the past, and he thought that's a really good idea. When we build, when I build a temple, <laughs> I want to have Hiri and Otapa right by right by the uh, the, the doors, and uh, and so. Uh, they are these angelic forms, kind of sort of radiant angelic forms, and the, so they're also known as the bright protectors or the guardians of the world. So Hiri and Otapa, they're translated in various different ways. Unfortunately, in the, the early uh, translations into English, I'm not sure what it's like into German or, or French or Italian, but the, the English translation of Hiri and Otapa were things like moral shame and moral dread. Which doesn't really make the heart sing, I would say. <laughs> moral shame and moral dread, and so that it it, uh, it has a more of a shriveling effect, like uh, upon the the heart, rather than a brightness or a, a sense of, of security and and protection, but rather as a sense of of threat. So I'd say it's a bit of an unfortunate translation. So hiri is really the quality of conscience or, or moral sensitivity. So Hiri and Otapa, they, they work um, by, uh, they, they protect, just like physical pain protects the body by being uncomfortable. Hiri and Otapa are psychological qualities and they protect by being painful. So if you tell a lie, that feeling of, oh, that wasn't really true, or oh, I hope nobody finds out, or that, oh, that wasn't very, that wasn't very kind, or that was, that was selfish, or if we act in a way which is aggressive or hurtful towards someone, or, or dishonest, or we, we cheat at something, that, that painfulness in the heart uh, is, uh, is uh, I would say, that is what Hiri is referring to, that uh, w- without any kind of um, I'm a terrible person, I shouldn't do this, I hope they don't find out. Yeah. With putting all of that aside, just the sheer uh, say, unwholesomeness of that, those words, those actions, uh, that brings a painfulness in the heart. So that, that uh, is uh, um, uh, a useful pain. Like physical pain, it works by being uncomfortable. Like fear protects us by being unpleasant. So we get to a place where we don't feel fear. <laughs> you stand back from the edge of the road so you feel comfortable. That's how fear works. It's a, it does its job by being unpleasant. So Hiri and Otapa, similarly, they, they work by being unpleasant med, uh, mental states. So Hiri is that that wasn't really true, or that wasn't very kind, or that, that had a painful result, or that, was, that, was, that came from a, a, a selfish, destructive place. Ow! Otapa is translated in somewhat different ways. Sometimes it's used to, refer, whereas Hiri refers to our own uh, actions in the past, uh, then uh, uh, the, uh, the quality of otapa refers to a fear of consequences, or, or, or what Ajahn Jayasara calls a, a wise fear of consequences. Like, if I step out into the road, <laughs> it's, the cars are going to have to avoid me, and I might get hit. So let's be cautious and uh, let's be, uh, not be rash. So a wise fear of consequences is one way of translating otapa. Another uh, uh, meaning it has is 
not just our, uh, in relationship to our, to our own actions, but it's the, the off-putting quality of the unskillful actions of other people. When you see someone else being destructive or deceitful or, or um, acting in, in abusive or dishonest ways, again, that, oh, that's, that's terrible, that's horrible. How can people do that? That, that painfulness in the heart is, uh, is related to otapa. And uh, again, it's a painfulness. But that's that's how it works. That's its signal. Is saying this is uh, this is uh, un, unhelpful. This is destructive. This is this is cruel. This is this is not compassionate. Ow! So that they work by being painful. So uh, uh, I feel it's it's helpful to understand that um, these are say that if we're going to develop. <laughs> That, that social intelligence or, or relational intelligence uh, based on sila, then Hiri and Otapa, they're the kind of the main tools uh, or the, that, uh, uh, that we, can, we can use for that. They're the, they're the kind of driving force for that protection. Now, one of the, uh, one of the, the um, I would say, the, the reasons why Western psychology in the therapeutic realm, and again, I, I'm sure there's a, a few therapists, psychiatrists here who can illuminate this area, but uh, uh, it's very likely the case that it's because of the Western mentality of self-hatred, self-criticism, problems of, of, of guilt, of shame, of self-hatred, that that's become a no-go area, or you don't make comments, you don't make people feel bad about their actions and speech because they're so likely, so prone to hating themselves anyway. Um, again, that's a bit of a sweeping statement, and I realize I'm being recorded <laughs> and filmed, <laughs> but uh, uh, that seems to be a very strong driving force because of the way the Western mentality relates to criticism, or, uh, and so that... To, in order to counteract that, personally, I feel, in my not particularly humble opinion, <laughs> it's swung a bit too far so that any comment about our behavior, our action, is, um, is like uh, uh, sort of uh, anything that might be slightly critical is taken as a personal attack and something that's psychologically damaging. Now, I feel there's a, there's a very helpful distinction that can be made right, right at that point. Because, as I was saying about Hiri and Otapa, they work by being painful. And uh, it, the, I would say that the quality of uh, the issues of shame and guilt and self-hatred, they're a lot to do with the mind getting, uh, say, addicted and habituated to the habits of self-view. And then it's self-view woven together with regret or, or criticism. Then they, they turn into this sort of toxic shame and, and toxic guilt. Just uh, as, a, as an aside, a, co uh, uh, a couple of stories in relationship to this. So uh, uh, I've told these stories a number of times before, but uh, it was at the Harmonia Mundi conference, a huge conference in Southern California many years ago, and His Holiness the Dalai Lama was giving a, a talk there. And uh, after he gave this talk, uh, one of the people in the audience asked a question about self-hatred. And to say, you know, Your Holiness, uh, if, you, if you have a lot of self-hatred, a lot of self-criticism, you know, how can you work with that? And then His Holiness um, said, well, forgive me if this is impolite or improper, but um, 
have you done some what have you done that you hate yourself for uh, you know have you been in the military have you have you killed someone or have you have you stolen things oh no 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 i'm a very good person i never killed anyone i never i've never bro- I've never broken the law i just hate myself and then the the, the dalai lama kind of went, sort of puzzled look came over his face and he went into a huddle with his translator and his translator was Tubton Jinpa who was doing a at that time he was doing a PhD in philosophy at Cambridge University Western philosophy so Tubton Jinpa came and gave him a quick rundown on the Western mind trap of self-hatred <laughs> he went into a huddle and then they came out of the huddle and his holiness said this is most unfortunate <laughs> and and then a very almost identical conversation happened here with uh, Lumpur Panyananda in the early days of Amravati. And he was giving a talk over in the old, old sala, which is currently being dismantled. Um, and uh, one of, maybe one of you, <laughs> asked him a very, very similar question. You know, Lumpur, what, what do you do about uh, self-hatred, self-criticism? And he, uh, he answered it a little bit differently. He said, self-hatred... It's a, it's a minor mental irritation, it's ign- uh, ignored, and it'll go away. And there was this blast of laughter from the whole group. A ha! You know, you're joking. It was like a spontaneous um, roar from, not quite a roar, but a, certainly a surge from the, the, the group of people gathered for that talk. Like, look, Paul, you, you, you do not know what we can do with our minds. That, uh, the capacity for self-hatred is is very very high, particularly in the Western world. So uh, that uh, that's my my one of my pet theories is that it's because of um, that hypersensitivity or the or the tendency towards a lot of self-hatred that um, uh, it's become the custom or the the, the, the standard you know, the the sort of legal standard. That uh, you know, a therapist can't say you know if you if you didn't cheat on your partner, you wouldn't have so much self uh, self criticism. <laughs> they, they're apparently, uh, I can I'm very open to being corrected. That it's not the therapist's uh, role to to say you know if you uh, if you uh, if you weren't a bank robber or you know you weren't a mafioso, you, know, you would feel less anxiety in your in your life. Like the in the Sopranos, Tony Soprano uh, famously visits his therapist a lot in the. I understand. I've never seen The Sopranos, but uh, uh, thus have I heard that, uh, that this mafioso, this mafia boss, spends a lot of time talking with this therapist. So anyway, the, um, uh, I would say that in terms of developing uh, relational intelligence, social intelligence, that we don't need to be afraid of those feelings of regret uh, or of recognizing this is unskillful, this is unwholesome. Because Hiri and Otapa, they function without any aspect of self-view, without any eye-making or mind-making. Just like physical pain, it, it works on the basis of the body and the nervous system. Um, and we say, ow, you know, I'm, I'm in pain or I feel, uh, I feel hurt. We, we, we think that or we say that, but the, the pain process works without an ego, right? <laughs> so uh, the uh, Hiri and Otapa, they function and they are, they are liberating and, and, and very much a protective quality and to be uh, cultivated, <laughs> I would say, uh, as much as possible um, because they can be cultivated completely free of self-view and so that there's not a... Uh, 
the, the mind grabbing hold of, of those qualities and saying, I'm an awful person, I'm a terrible person, I shouldn't be this way, um, everyone hates me because I, I'm like this, and so on and so forth. And so I feel if we can make that distinction, we can tease those things apart, then we don't need to be afraid of judging uh, the, the, the conduct that we, we follow. And that, uh, that to see that uh, you know, wholesome conduct leads to, to, to bright and spacious, easeful states of mind and unwholesome conduct and speech leads to stressful and painful and divisive and... Uh, and uh, the uh, un- uh, anxious and uncomfortable states of mind as the, the the natural process. I would say that uh, in uh, in meditation, some of the advice that I often give is uh, around loving kindness, establishing loving kindness as a basis, and uh, metta not just as a well wishing to all beings, but metta as an open heartedness. So that uh, metta, I would say, has has two aspects. And the, the first aspect is opening the heart to the way things are, the, the, the people around us, the world around us, the, the thoughts and feelings that arise within our own minds, and to have an, an, a completely open attitude to what we experience, to have metta for our mind states, even if our mind states are uh, jealous, angry, selfish, <laughs> you know, uh, you know, irritable states that the to have an attitude of loving kindness is to say, well, here they are, Not, uh, and just as you accept the feelings of of uh, friendliness, of unselfishness, and generosity, here they are. Uh, so the the first part of of that practice, uh, I would say, in, in establishing metta is an is a complete open heartedness. Then the quality of wisdom comes in. The, the discrimination, and I would say, uh, as an aspect of loving kindness and an aspect of mindfulness, there is a, a natural uh, wisdom which says, this is unwholesome, this is wholesome. Uh, there, I would say that's uh, an intrinsic part of genuine mindfulness and genuine loving kindness is the wisdom element, the ability to discriminate, this is wholesome, this is unwholesome, this is neutral. So having opened the heart to everything within us, the, the feelings of, of kindness and generosity, the feelings of selfishness and jealousy and, and irritation, uh, then that, that mindfulness and wisdom, that, uh, that factor comes into play and uh, there's a discrimination. This is wholesome. If this is, if this is followed and developed, then this will lead to benefit for myself and other beings. Therefore, let this be given energy and let it be supported. So you cultivate the wholesome and sustain it in being. And then this is the unwholesome. This is, this is uh, aggressive. This is unkind. This is dishonest. Um, this is going to have painful results for, for this being and other beings. Therefore, let, uh, let this be uh, re- relinquished and let go of. Let this uh, not be given more energy. And again, that, that discrimination, it doesn't have to have any kind of self, uh, selfing involved in it. Rather than, I've got to become good, I've got to hang on to this good quality, I've got to, to make more of my kindness and wisdom. <laughs> uh, doesn't doesn't have to be an I or me or mine in there. Similarly, I, I've got to get rid of these jealous or angry feelings. I've got to be more. I've got to be more uh, more unselfish and, and generous. There doesn't have to be any I in there at all. Just like with Hiri and Otapa, the cultivation of right effort, samavayama, 
doesn't have any uh, quality of self involved. So the restraining the unwholesome from arising, or if it's, un, if it's arisen, letting it go, uh, or the cultivation of the wholesome and maintaining it in being, there's no I or me or mine involved in that. Again, we'll have time for open things up for, for questions uh, uh, in a little while, but uh, that uh, I would suggest this is a, a key element of it. So that when we are talking about uh, cultivating uh, sila as a social or relational in, intelligence, then we, uh, we don't need to be afraid of, afraid of making choices. <laughs> we don't need to, to feel, oh, I should just, I, I should, uh, I, I shouldn't, uh, uh, be uh, giving my life any direction at all, any kind of desiring, any kind of of choosing is somehow that that's very dualistic. I would say, well, <laughs> it's uh, just like it, it's uh, some kinds of dualism are useful. Uh, I'm pointing, I'm facing the east. You're facing the west, <laughs> so, so we can see each other. You know, I'm, I'm giving the talk. You're you're listening. So that kind of duality. I'm here. You're there. There's nothing wrong with that duality. <laughs> Right, I would say. So we can get a bit uh, over, um, uh, say, uh, over fussy, or, or taking the the idea of not not wanting to be dualistic, or or, or picking and choosing. We can take that very high-minded attitude and misuse it. Dualisms are, are quite handy. The, the which side of the road is the right ro- is the correct side of the road to drive on? In this country, on the left. <laughs> other, uh, over in France, on the right. You know, it's a, a useful dualism. It's not an, an absolute position in relationship to life. It's a it's a a, a useful dis- discrimination to make. It's not anything intrinsically harmful or obstructive or, or problematic. I would suggest. So, again, making that discrimination. This is wholesome. Therefore, let it be boosted and sustained. This is unwholesome. Therefore, let it be uh, relinquished and let go of. There's nothing. Um, uh, say unspiritual or uns- unskillful or problematic with that, and if we look at the Buddha's teachings, that's spelled out in a lot of <laughs> over and over and over again in a lot of detail. You know, this is wholesome. This is unwholesome. This is to be developed. This is to be abandoned. And so, the Buddha's teaching helps us to work skillfully on the relative level, and that skillful working on the relative level helps the mind to eventually be. Uh, uh, to be able to to understand and to know things on a on an ultimate level, on the lokutara level, but to establish things in a skillful way on the on the relative level is the, an important first step. So then, uh, in terms of uh, of sila, um, then hopefully that gives a, a bit of a picture and uh, understanding hiriyotapa is. Uh, so it really is a bit regrettable that you come across translations like moral dread. <laughs> the little a bit uh, you can sort of feel the the, the uh, sort of Victorian um, schoolmaster leaning over you with a with a a, uh, uh, a cane, so ready to punish you for your your bad behaviour and. Uh, that this, uh, the language is so sort of threatening and ugly. But if you think in terms of the bright protectors. <laughs> The, the the guardians of the world, then it has a bit of a different tone. So I would encourage us to relate to to the uh, these lokapala, uh, these guarding principles, these guardians of the heart in this uh, with a in a much more positive light. So.
So also in, in terms of sila, uh, again, in a similar way, when we, talk, when we think about sila, most of us think, oh, the five precepts, or the, and so don't do this, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. Like, don't, 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 don't. <laughs> Eight precepts, don't, 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 don't. Yeah, we have 227 out of here, that's a lot of don'ts, yeah. So that the, the, um, the but that I would say uh, another important thing to consider with uh, sila as a new definition for intelligence um, uh, or this sila as this sort of relational intelligence, the basis of sila isn't just the, the rules that are spelled out, the sikapada. When we, when we think of sila, that might be what the, be the first things that come to mind. All the, you know, panatipata viratmani sikapadang samadhyami. Um, so that is, I would say, the, um, the academic side or, or the, um, the, the, the um, conceptual side of sila. That's when it's spelled out and described in terms of, a, of a, an appropriate behavior. But the, the heart of sila is not the, the spelling out of the rules. I would say that the, the heart or the origin of sila is, is the quality of bodhi itself, the, uh, the awake, aware mind. That, uh, that, uh, uh, and this is something that uh, sometimes people miss. They think, oh, sila is all the things that you shouldn't do, and then meditation is, uh, and wisdom is something else. But I would say that the, 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 the source of sila is the awakened mind itself. And this comes across in, in a number of teachings of the, the Lord Buddha uh, that I like to emphasize. Um, and also there's a, there's a word in Pali, gunadhamma, which again is not very well known, but uh, in the Thai language, kunatam. So guna is a spiritual quality, like when we talk about the Buddha guna, Dhamma guna, Sangha guna, the, the, the qualities of the Buddha, the Dhamma and the Sangha, when we chant those, Itipiso Bhagava Arahang Samasamuto, those are the, the Buddha Guna, the, the qualities of the Buddha or the qualities of the, of the Dhamma, Sanditiko Akalika, apparent here and now, timeless, encouraging investigation. So Guna, G U N with a dot underneath, a Guna, is a spiritual quality. So Guna Dhamma is, is that quality, it's the virtue of the heart, it's that in your heart which loves the good. So the Guna is is not sort of virtue as in terms of the, the rules that you follow, but it's that quality of your heart that delights in goodness, that delights in unselfishness, that delights in honesty and generosity, in, both in yourself and in other people. Like, like this morning we were, uh, uh, say, having a memorial and celebration of the life of, of uh, His Late Majesty King Bhumipon. Are you do, I do your date. Uh, we have the shrine for him here. Also, I was mentioning Queen Elizabeth, uh, who, as people know, uh, passed away very recently, and that um, that quality of uh, of the kunatam, the the uh, that in the heart which which loves the good, and say these uh, these people in positions of great authority, great responsibility in society, function very much as as an embodiment, as an example of that quality of of goodness and. Um, the, uh, uh, the say the encouragement to to be uh, to be guided by that that love of the good, kunatam, uh, 
So I feel that's a, I'd like to bring that more into the Western usage of, of Buddhist language, gunadhamma, uh, that love of the good uh, and the rejoicing in goodness. And so like we're rejoicing in the goodness of King Bhumipon Nanduyade, rejoicing in the goodness of Queen Elizabeth. That, that, that's something that's delightful, it's enjoyable, we appreciate that, it's inspiring. So that gunadhamma is that love of the good. There's also a, a Western... Uh, term from religious philosophy, which is synderesis, as an even more unusual, <laughs> very very uh, rarely used word in English. Synderesis, S Y N D E R E S I S, synderesis, which again means the love of the good, your own kind of fundamental moral sense of this is wholesome, this is beautiful, this is noble, this is unwholesome, this is destructive, this is painful. So um, when we uh, consider that the, the source of sila, that source of that intelligence, is the awake, aware mind, then the, the rules are a, a way of spelling out, okay, if the heart is fully uh, attuned, if that gunadhamma is, is strengthened and is operating without obstruction, then you will not be interested in taking life of any other living being. You will not be acquisitive. You won't try and steal anything. You, you won't engage in sexual misconduct. Uh, and uh, and so forth, and the uh, that principle is spelled out in a couple of uh, teachings. I, I like to to quote. One is called the Upposita Sutta. If you want to look these up, uh, these are all in the the numerical discourses. These ones in the Book of the Eights, Sutta number forty one. And uh, I did look it up before today's talks. So don't be too impressed. <laughs> so suttas forty one and forty two. They, they're very, very similar. And uh, it's a, a description of the Buddha, of, how, of the Buddha's methodology of how he established the eight precepts as a way of, for the lay community to observe the moon days. So it's like his own internal thinking. Uh, so he, he, uh, uh, he says, you know, all their lives, the Arahants, from the time of enlightenment until they're passing away, they never deliberately take the life of another living being. Wouldn't it be useful for the lay community on this, on this moon day, one day a week, if they adopt that behavior, then they will be living as the Arahants do, and that will be for their long-lasting benefit and happiness. And similarly, you know, all their lives, uh, an Arahant never steals anything. They don't engage in sexual activity. They, they never lie and so forth with the whole of the, the eight precepts. So the, the, eight, the basis of the eight precepts as a weekly observance for the lay community is the natural conduct of the enlightened mind. So that it's, that's where it comes from. So it's spelled out as uh, only eating in the morning time or not, not wearing jewelry or seeking entertainment or not engaging in sexual activity. But it's saying, you know, if the mind is totally enlightened, then it's impossible to, t to tell a lie. You're not interested in sexual activity. If the mind is totally enlightened, you're not looking for distraction and entertainment. You're not looking to, to excite or charm other people, just distract the mind. You're not taking refuge in, in more sleep than you really need. So uh, in that Upposita Sutta, the, uh, then the Buddha spells that out. And there's also another couple of suttas uh, where he is talking to two different wanderers from different uh, spiritual groups. Uh, they're side by side in the Book of the Nines, Sutta number seven and Sutta number eight. Again, I looked that up <laughs> to get my numbers straight. 
So uh, and one of these uh, wanderers is called Suttava and the other is called Sajja. And it's a very similar dialogue with, with the two of them. And uh, the Buddha is saying how for, if, if, a being, if someone is an arahant, it's impossible for them to deliberately take the life of another living being. They, they can't do that. It's not like there's a rule stopping them. It's like the hand cannot move to take the life of another being. They, they can't tell a lie. It's impossible to, you know, the, the tongue won't form an untruth. It's impossible for, for them to lie. And so there's also very uh, interesting discourses to, to, to take a look at. Uh, interestingly, I think in the one to Suttava, the, the fifth precept is not about drugs and alcohol. Uh, after the, the first four, uh, about not killing, not stealing, not engaging in sexual activity, not lying, the fifth one is um, an, ar- an arahant all their lives uh, from the time of enlightenment an arahant will never lay up a store for the, for the future that, they, that you, you're uh, prepared to live on what shows up today and what, what's going to happen tomorrow let it, let it look after itself which is similar to what you find in the New Testament let the things of the morrow look after themselves that's probably a misquotation but my vague memories of somewhere in the New Testament Jesus says something like that so it's a very similar principle that the, the Buddha spells out in that sutta. So in, in these different teachings, uh, the, the, it's pointed out how the root of sila is the awake mind. So if the, if the heart is fully awake and aware, then it can't, be, it can't be destructive, it can't be disrespectful of the lives or the property of others. Uh, it, uh, it can't, can't uh, there's no interest and no ability to tell a lie and so on and so forth. So I do feel that's helpful to understand when we talk about sila as a, as a, um, a new definition of intelligence. <laughs> In a way, the root of that uh, is, uh, is the awake, aware mind. And then the qualities of hiri and otapa, that conscience or honor, um, uh, that you, you can also translate, you know, uh, hiri uh, as, as honor or conscience, um, or an otapa as consequential thinking, that uh, that is like the, the, the means whereby that awake, aware mind functions in relationship to the world and it informs action and speech. So in uh, in uh, uh, applying or developing this kind of relational intelligence, the social intelligence, the sila as this, uh, as a, a basis, then what are the results of that? Uh, what, you know, what are the effects uh, if we are living intelligently, going to quote unquote in this way? If we cultivate this kind of intelligence, what are the effects of that? And again, another interesting. A sutta that I like to quote uh, with respect to, to sila, uh, again, because we often think of sila as don't do this, don't do that, don't, 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 you know, all that kind of, all those no's. <laughs> Sometimes people think of the Buddha as the one who knows, no, 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 no. The one who says no. Uh, but uh, there's a very interesting sutta called the, the, the streams of merit, so like the currents or the rivers the rivers of punya, of merit, of boon. Um, and the, the, the Buddha says there are these eight streams of merit which are these powerful currents of blessing and benefit in our lives. The first three are taking refuge in Buddha, Dhamma and Sangha. 
So that's the first three of the, of the eight. And then the, the last five are the five precepts. Uh, the, as people are, uh, are familiar with, I'm sure. So he said, uh, the, uh, and he calls these the five great gifts, Mahadana. He says, these are the five great gifts, the five precepts. Because if you take the precept to not take life, then you grant to other living beings immeasurable, uh, incalculable freedom from distress, freedom from fear, freedom from anxiety. And in turn, you grant yourself immeasurable freedom from fear, freedom from distress, freedom from anxiety. So it's a gift you're giving to other beings. They, when you come in the room or you come nearby, they don't have to run away from you. That the animals that live around Amaravati, they know they're not going to be harmed. In fact, if they come near Ajahn Kongrit, they'll probably get fed. He's got a whole family of badgers that uh, regularly visit his, uh, his kuti. And uh, don't mind me mentioning your badger family. So, so that they, they know. Uh, and then, you know, outside my kuti, often there's pigeons just sort of lounging around on the grass. And they kind of get up and waddle away a little bit. But they don't sort of, oh my goodness, it's one of those dangerous two-leggeds with the sticks that go bang, uh, that they, they're kind of casual. In the early days at Chidhurst, um, there used to be a huge rabbit population in the monastery, and the, the rabbits got so casual, they'd be just lying on the grass. They wouldn't even sit up to eat the grass. They'd be lying on their side. <laughs> like they're at a Roman, a Roman banquet, lying on their sides, nibbling the grass. That, and you just walk, you know, walk within a, about, you know, three or four feet of them, and they'd... Maybe give you a look, but they weren't. They weren't afraid. So that's one. That's a wonderful thing that the, the animals are not afraid. This, you're giving them fearlessness. It's called abhayadana, abhayadana. So the, in this sutta, the the streams of merit, the Buddha points out: if you don't steal, if you refrain from stealing, taking what is not given, then you grant immeasurable freedom from fear, freedom from distress, uh, freedom from anxiety to immeasurable beings. People, when you come in the room, people don't have to hide their handbag under the chair or put the silver away if they if you're coming to visit. You know, uh, the uh, they know they don't have to worry about you if you're in the in the workplace. People, uh, if they know that you don't lie or you don't gossip, they they uh, they're happy to talk with you. They they they're not worried that what you're telling them is is alive to get some sort of advantage or to to impress them or, or cheat them or or to deceive them for whatever reason. And that, uh, that creates a, a zone of trust, a zone of blessing. So that the Buddha says, these are the, these eight streams of punya, streams of blessing, great rivers, currents of, of blessing in our lives. So we don't usually think about the five precepts as great gifts. <laughs> we think of them as, as limitations, mostly. But... Uh, they are uh, uh, these mahadana, these great gifts that uh, the Buddha describes. So I feel it's skillful to, to think of them in that way. And then the, the um, another of the effects of, of developing this kind of uh, uh, relational intelligence, I, I'm not, I haven't coined that word, that, that phrase, that's a, it's a Social intelligence and relational intelligence are they're, they're terms that are around in the, the field already. But uh, I do think it's quite a good way of, of, uh, of um, say, relating to sila as uh, uh, in its role in, in our so cultivation of skillful living. 
that um, so uh, the Buddha said in another teaching in the um, uh, in the book of the tens in the again in the numerical discourses he said if you live uh, in a in a, a morally sensitive way if you live a, according to the the precepts if you if you cherish sila then there's no need to there's no need to think may I be free from remorse because it's natural for one who who lives in a, in a moral and uh, honest, honourable way, the heart is free from remorse. Uh, there's no, uh, there's no remorse. So he said, then for one who is is free from remorse, there's no need for them to wish, may I experience delight, pamoja. It's natural for one who is free from remorse to feel delight, or you can, or you could say, self-respect is another more sort of Western psychological way of phrasing it. So pamoja, sense of of delight or, or ease. Uh, you know, within yourself, and then he said, "So one who who feels that quality of delight or self-respect, there's no need for them to say, may I experience joy, uh, rapture, piti, rapture.' As so one who experiences uh, delight and joy, there's no need for them to say to wish, may my body be relaxed, because it's natural. It's, it's in accordance with nature that one." Who uh, is uh, who feels self-respect and feels joy? Their body will be relaxed, and one who is whose body is relaxed, says, then there's no need for them to think, uh, "May I experience contentment, sukha?" One whose body is relaxed naturally feels contentment, sukha, happiness. And then he goes on to say, one who feels sukha experiences sukha. There's no need for them to think, "May my mind be concentrated," because it's natural. It's in accordance with nature that one who experiences contentment, naturally their mind is easily concentrated. And for one whose mind is concentrated, there's no need for them to think, uh, may uh, insight arise, may knowledge and vision of the way things are arise. He said, for one whose mind is concentrated, it's natural for knowledge and vision of the way things are to arise. And for one who's in whom knowledge and vision arises, then there's no need for them to think, uh, may I... Uh, may I let go? May I uh, be uh, uh, unentangled, dispassionate? May I uh, be uh, free from grasping? Because it's natural. If if, uh, if there's insight, if the mind sees the way things are, then letting go and non-grasping, non-entanglement is the natural result of that. And for one whose heart is free of grasping and entanglement, who's dispassionate, there's no need for them to wish, may I know, may I realize the, the, uh, the knowledge and vision of liberation? Because for one who... Uh, has uh, uh, whose whose heart is unentangled, who is, has that quality of dispassion and and coolness. It's natural for knowledge and vision of the way things are to arise, and knowledge and vision of, of liberation. So, at the very root of that whole ten-part sequence, there is sila. That, that, right? That's uh, the very basis of it. And uh, this is uh, quite a well-known teaching, often called "Liberation is a Natural Process." And uh, it, it, uh, right at the very basis of it, and I would say also why when people come to the monastery, particularly on the weekend, uh, determining the refuges and precepts is an kind of automatic part of coming to the monastery. It's like <laughs> setting those things in place so that you're re-establishing those principles and that we use the the wording of it, repeating the formula of Panati Pata Viratmani, you know, I undertake the precept to refrain from taking the life of any living creature. We're saying the words in order to remind ourselves of that inner quality, of that in us which wishes no harm to any other being, um, physically or verbally. 
that uh, I mean, the, the, the spelling out of the precepts in in terms of the, the words, uh, uh, they are not really receiving the precepts, but more reminding ourselves of our own true heart, our own good heart, and that uh, that uh, like I was saying this morning, that that golden quality of the heart, that that in, uh, indestructible aspect of the of the heart, the heart's pure natural wisdom, letting that function, letting that operate. So then uh, we are able to, in that way to live in a, in a, a manner that's very effective, very harmonious and uh, a great blessing to, to this being and to all other beings. So I offer these thoughts for consideration this afternoon and I hope there's enough tea to go around. There's quite a big crowd gathered today but uh, there should be some refreshments available up at the kitchen and then we'll gather back the bell will go about 20 past and we can gather back for some further questions and discussion at 20 past three. Spend more time, more and more and more time in that wonderful intelligence. <laughs> uh, yes, well, there's... There's um, the, the simple answer in terms of Buddhist psychology is avijja, ignorance. And that's uh, that's what keeps distracting the uh, the attention uh, and the habits of of mind. Uh, a Western way of talking about it is uh, the imp of the perverse. When everything is perfect and special and good, then the imp of the perverse says, "Take a left." <laughs> And part of us has not doesn't really want it to end and is really enjoying it, but something, some perverse, and I think that that expression, the imp of the perverse, uh, has arisen because human society has recognised that all over the planet for many many generations. It's kind of weird; it doesn't make sense. It's not logical, but it it happens. And uh, part of it, I think, is. Um, uh, because the mind is not just a single thing. It's more like a committee or a, a collection of different influences. And so some members of the committee are saying, this is great, this is just exactly what I wanted, this is a dream come true. Right. And then another member of the committee is saying, I don't like it, I don't want it, I'm not going to let it happen. And uh, it's... Um, so a lot of the practice of Dhamma is learning to listen to those different voices in the committee and uh, learning from what, uh, what happens. So if a, if a wholesome impulse is followed um, and uh, we see the good result of that, then recognizing, oh, well, this is, if this is followed, this is what happens. Okay, this is, this is uh, delightful, this is, this is pleasant. And then not adding on to that, Oh, now I've really got it. Downhill from here on, this is going to be a breeze. Like, don't add that on. <laughs> but rather, okay, this is heading in a good direction. This is a, this is delightful. This is this is beautiful. Full stop. And then, if you take a, a, an unskillful direction, okay, well, this is painful. Um, this is exactly what I didn't want. Why did I do that again? And rather than, than dwelling on that and saying, oh, I'm a terrible person, how could I do that? I said, I'm never going to do that again. Then, okay, this was done, here's the cause, here's the effect, full stop. So that's what I was saying about Hiriotapa, it's like 
consequential thinking. It's like, here's the cause, here's the effect. That's all. If they if the, the see that the, a wholesome cause has a beneficial effect, right. An unwholesome cause has a painful effect, right. And then those speak for themselves. When it comes to all the eye-making and my-making and the conceptual proliferation, it tends to make it much more tangled and complicated. But in terms of developing the inclination towards what's beneficial and wholesome, the more simple we can keep it and the more uncluttered that consequential thinking is. Like, here's the cause, here's the effect. So rather than, I'm a terrible person, how can I do that again? You know, and to say, well, wait, wait, wait. This was, done, this was done. This is what was said. Here's the result. Ow. Full stop. <laughs> Just let that have its own effect. And so that's how that's developed. And then the other way of developing that uh, as a, uh, sort of strengthening the, the quality of the wholesome is not to blow our own trumpet, but keep showing up at, a place like Amravati, <laughs> being around good people, you know, being around like-minded people. If you spend your time you know, pinned to the news, uh, then uh, that'll have its effect. That's the cause. <laughs> There's the effect. Not saying that we shouldn't be aware of what's going on in the world, but how many hours a day do we have to be filling the mind with the details? Um, and then you come to a, monast- you know, a monastery on a Sunday afternoon, listen to a talk, be around good, uh, good-hearted, like-minded people. What's the effect of that? Right, yes. <laughs> so the, um, the, the Buddha praised the association with, with wise people, Sapurisa Sangseva, that's kind of number one on the list of beneficial uh, supports. So uh, spending time with good people, that's a... another major support. So please, any other questions? Yes. If you could use the microphone, please. Hello, Bhante. Thank you for the talk. Um, Yes, I was wondering, with Hirian Otapa, how can you stop it from being a a double-edged sword? Um, the the uncomfortableness, the fear of doing something in the future protects the community and yourself. But when you look but then when you look back at what you've done, the same Hiryanotapa can make you feel uncomfortable and, and, and self loathing and, and disrupt your method for yourself when you look back and and see what you've done in the past. Um, isn't there a danger there? Uh, well, the, the the danger is the self-view taking over the picture. Uh, like if you if you look back at your past, at something unskillful that that you've done, if that was done by somebody that you knew, or somebody that you read about on in the newspaper or on the, on the news, that person A did such and such, and this was the result, then how would you relate to that? You say, oh, that was very stupid, or that was unkind. Full stop. Because it's got your name on it, because I did that, I shouldn't have done that, I'm a terrible person, then all that I-making and mind-making gets added on. The more that we can simply recognize, it's not a lack of taking responsibility, but it's in a way seeing this was done, choices were made at that time, and 
this was the result. It, it was unskillful, it was dishonest, it was unkind, or whatever. And these were the painful results. Here's the cause, here's the effect. So uh, it's it's not a kind of clever way of being irresponsible. <laughs> but rather, it's say, if somebody else had done this, how would I feel about it? You think, well, there's a natural criticism, but... It's uh, and it's saying, yeah, that's that's not beautiful. That's really uh, uh, unskillful, but we don't take it personally. So, in exactly the same way, we can look at our, our, our own actions, our own choices, and not take them personally. Similarly, our achievements, the things that we're proud of and that we really want to tell everyone about. If somebody else had done that, it's okay. He got a book published. Oh yeah, okay. So you know, he got a promotion. Big deal. You know, and that, that we can look at our own life and think. Big deal. <laughs> and, and something in us uh, enjoys or delights in that the ego not being inflated. So it's not just with negative actions, it's also learning not to take things that we, we, uh, we read as positive uh, in a personal way either. And so it, it's not, I mean, the, one of the, the most uh, insightful, helpful statements by a Western philosopher was. Uh, by George Santayana, who said, those who do not learn from the past are condemned to repeat it. So it's good to learn from the past. <laughs> and in a way, if we, we see actions that we've taken that were really painful, it's, it's useful to, to visit that. Not to create more self-hatred or self-criticism, but to learn the lesson. Okay, that was really painful. That had some negative results. Okay, let's learn, let's be informed by that. So that if the mind starts inclining towards something similar in the future, then it's like, no, 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 I'm not interested in going there. I'm not going to take that turn because I know where it goes. So that the, the whole manner of relating to um, our past achievements and, and successes and our past disasters and, and, uh, and uh, difficulties, it, it's, it's taken from a, from a very different perspective. So it's all the eye making and mind making is the that's the uh, trouble making. So okay. it's it's useful. I mean, it's like the 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 night of the Buddha's enlightenment. Uh, uh, it just describes how he he replayed like hundreds of thousands of his past lifetimes, and he wasn't always behaving well in those lifetimes. <laughs> you know, in, in his in his um, his long long career as a bodhisattva. Uh, as it said in the teachings, he broke all the precepts. The only precept he didn't break was against lying. He never told he never told a lie during those those countless lifetimes. But all the other precepts he he uh, he broke. So he was remembering the lessons that were learned from the good things that were done, like the benefits of practicing loving kindness or generosity, and also the 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 results of acting in a way that's greedy or deceptive or social, uh, selfish. Uh, Manipulative, uh, destructive. You know, he was a warrior, noble king. You know, many, many lifetimes. So it's useful to learn from the past, but the important thing is not to take it personally. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Bandana. Uh, uh, thank you very much to give a chance to talk and question. Well, I have one question about on behalf of my wife. So she couldn't sleep uh, last one month. So due to her, you know, she can't under control her stress. 
and uh, when she uh, closed her eyes she could, she seen uh, the previous negative everything what happened and when she uh, closed her eyes she seen only uh, the bad things what happened previously before then uh, we been to the doctor and the hospital and they gave some sleeping pill stress free some uh, medication but it is not effective and still she is suffering and she just sometimes exciting and angry herself and little bit uh, she is always crying now uh, the time when because and sometimes she shake in uh, sometime when she understand she come down and again when and she is scared about that uh, she can't sleep that's why she will be mad or crazy or what will be happen or she is going to die so she doesn't know what she she's going to do and uh, she's very scared and uh, she doesn't know what will be happen she is my wife here so please any answer from our buddhism or buddha philosophy say any about it thank you very much well there's a, a lot of things there uh, I think the uh, w- uh, one of the things I was talking about earlier is um it's important to have loving kindness to uh, not just to other beings but to our own mind states that if we are afraid of something or we push it away we make it stronger and so sometimes just to uh, to try and have a quality of open heartedness I mean I'm not a psychiatrist or uh, a medical practitioner so uh, I can only give advice in terms of meditation but that um I would say that uh readiness to to uh, open the heart to acknowledge oh this is I have a body I have a mind so that it can experience a big variety of different things some pleasant things some painful things some things that we can understand some things we can't understand here it is this is you know, life has many complex qualities and so that uh loving kindness metta is is a, a recognition that uh, you know all these different things that we experience are, are part of nature having been born you know, mostly we can't tell where things come from i'll say 99.9% of the time why we experience what we do is a mystery not just for you and your family everybody maybe 0.1 of a percent is like okay that's <laughs> that this has come from there 99.9% is like why do i experience that or how do, why do i feel this way or why did that thought come up in my mind just now and it's mysterious that's the same for for most people i would say uh, a lot of life is mysterious and so um uh that uh, uh, establishing that quality of of uh of openness readiness to this is what uh, right now life is life is like this and it's not pleasant it's not what we would like but here it is in this moment it's this way and then uh in that you're also uh doing what you can to let go of the past to let go of the future not worrying about what's go- what it's going to be like uh, next week or in the future but rather okay in this moment there is this this these feelings is these um, mental images or this the this uh, this mood in this moment it's like this and uh, i don't understand where it's coming from i don't understand what it might mean but 
here it is, it's like this in this moment. And that simplicity and straightforwardness is what I, I would recommend. Because it's where the mind creates a, a long story. Oh, what's it going to be like in the future? Where's this going to go? Or uh, this is uh, yeah, uh, a um, this is a permanent problem. Then the mind creates more difficulty. If if we have mindfulness and loving kindness, then we can find the attention to the, the present. I see that your son has a microphone, but there's lots of other people here as well. So, and you weren't here for the main talk. So, if you can, please uh, uh, let somebody else ask a question. That would be much appreciated. A gentleman with the white hoodie. There you go. Hello, Arjun. Thank you very much for your talk. Um, I, no, I just wanted to say just um, what you were saying about the having problems with nasty dreams and um, and sleeping and stuff like that. The, it's in the Sutta, the Buddha said specifically one of the 11 benefits of Metta Bhavana is, well, I guess it would be three of them would be you sleep well, you have no evil dreams and you wake in comfort as well. So. Yeah, more, uh, when it comes to Metta, more is better. This is the slogan, that's the slogan for next year's t-shirt. When it comes to meta, more is better. So there's many, many benefits from that. So that, but it's, it's more than just thinking the word meta, meta, meta. It's the, the feeling that openness of heart is really the, the important, it's the real ground of meta is that open-hearted quality. But thank you for that. That's helpful. That's okay. Now, I just wanted to ask as well, um, it's kind of... Uh, oh, no, that's... Okay. Thank you. Thank you, Vanta. Uh, this gentleman with a white T-shirt had a question. Thank you, Vanta. Uh, this question is actually related to a talk you gave uh, in October 2021 uh, titled Holy Shift, The Liberation of Stream Entry, Vanta. Uh, in that, I sent you a question, Vanta, and uh, you gave the question... Uh, the gist of the question... You can hold the microphone closer so we can hear. Yeah. Uh, the gist of the question was uh, the importance of uh, the Noble Eightfold Path for stream entry. Uh, the gist of it. The question is a bit long, so I'll just uh, tell you the gist, Vante. Uh, you gave a great answer, uh, but in the answer, Vante, you gave uh, two sutra references. Like uh, You said that uh, you can practice the Noble Eightfold Path in a, in a mundane mode, uh, and you, the sutta uh, numbers you gave were uh, uh, Majjhimanikaya 113 and 137. Uh, but I've read both the suttas. I couldn't find the, uh, uh, I couldn't find what I was looking for. Uh, I have a feeling that Bhante meant a different sutta there, like, uh, but the number was incorrect. So that's my question. <laughs> Just to, uh, I can read the question if it doesn't. Yeah, the um, uh, I was not remembering the number. Um, yeah, the uh, I think the sutra is called the Great Forty. Um, but uh, maybe there's a Pali scholar here can knows which number. One three seven. So, anyways, I think it's called the Great Forty, and it talks about the mundane eightfold path and the supra mundane eightfold okay, path. Uh, okay, but because uh, one hundred thirty-seven is uh, Salayatana Vibhanga Sutta, I think. Uh, the sutta you are referring to must be the right one, Bhante. Thank you. Thank you so much. Very good. 
I'm impressed you remembered it from that long ago. <laughs> yes. Uh, can I just ask that couple, two or three quickfire ones? Um, um, so the Moon Day precepts for lay people, so they come here and keep the eight precepts. Um, so should, could we, if we don't come here, could we still keep the eight precepts on the Moon Day? Is that something that Buddha suggested, or is it only if you come to a temple? No, it's a, you can... It's, it's a totally open field. You can keep them anywhere you like on the moon if you, right. if you wish. Yeah. So once a week, because in Western it, society we rest on Sundays, but is it better to rest on the moon day or Sunday or up to the person? It's uh, up to your individual judgment. Whatever fits in with your routine and your your work life. Fine. Okay. If you're if you're in the restaurant business, Mondays are open. True. Um, Hiriyotapa, what's this? Is there a source in one of the suttas or something for about Hiriyotapa? Did you mention uh, where it comes from, or is it came later? Um, there's a number of places. What well, the um, in the Iti Wutaka, Iti Wutaka, yeah, which is um, one of the collections of teachings. Uh, there are uh, the Buddhists. He uses that term, the bright protectors, oh. to describe Hiri and Otapa. I couldn't tell you which number because I didn't look it up today. Fine, 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 fine. <laughs> but if you look the, in the Itiwutaka, and that's sometimes uh, translated as "thus it was said" or, or the, the, the Buddha's words, but the Iti I T I V U T T A K A Itiwutaka. Yeah. I can probably search it and find it, but now I know where it is. And then last, uh, self hatred. Uh, those people say self hatred. I, I suffer from that too a bit, and. Um, is that like Mara, isn't it? The inner critical voice or whatever. That's the source of the self-hatred generally. Would you say that's true? That it's, it's, it's woven in that it's the basic um, uh, conditioning of mind to focus on the patterns of self-centered thinking. So... Yeah, Mara is a, an embodiment of, of sort of delusion and and the, um, that eye-making and mind-making is a, a principal tool of that sort of delusory motivation in the mind. But it's a, um, there's a very, very strong quality, and particularly in the, in the sort of Western Judeo-Christian conditioning. Um, on the Catholic side, you have original sin, uh, which was, um, uh, I think, invented by St. Augustine. Well, not invented, but <laughs> I think he, he came up with the, the term, St. Augustine. Um, and then also in the, the um, you know, various aspects of the Judeo-Christian conditioning, there's a, you know, you, your, uh, the, the way that you relate to your, yourself is in a fundamentally negative way. Like the... Um, or even uh, Freud, who wasn't being religious, uh, but uh, his, uh, he talked about the id as, quote-unquote, the black tide of mud, the basis of our being. So, so that's pretty grim. Yikes. <laughs> and also, not, not to malign Freud, but uh, uh, I, had a, I studied psychology in university, and um, so when we, in the first year we had some lectures on Freud, and uh, I remember the... Um, the lecturer uh, telling us that the 
the, the, the final passage or the kind of denouement of Freud's first book, The Interpretation of Dreams, was uh, something, it was obviously in German, but the English translation is, the best that my method can do is to transform your neurotic misery into ordinary human unhappiness. <laughs> and I heard that and something in me just snapped, like, no, we can do better than that. I mean, I was an 18-year-old ready to explain the universe to everybody, but uh, that was like, no, that, that, if that's the best you can do, sorry, mate. Yeah. But that was my first, first year in, in college, so it was like, okay, I had to stay with it for another two years to graduate, but uh, I managed to endure, just about. But um, that, that kind of uh, attitude percolates through a lot of the Western conditioning, and so... Um, and it was interesting that the, the responses that both Lumpur Panyananda and, and His Holiness the Dalai Lama gave uh, to their you know, to those comments. Also, many years ago, there, uh, there, in the early days of Chithurst, there was a, a, a Sri Lankan novice there who was a, a, a student of Ajahn Sumato. And, and quite innocently, after one evening Dhamma talk, he said, you know, I don't know why Ajahn Sumato keeps going on about self-hatred. I quite like myself. I'm, I'm not a bad person. Why, why would I hate myself? And he was really quite puzzled. Like, why does he keep talking about self-hatred? This is so strange. And the, again, the other uh, Europeans around him going, <laughs> where do we begin? Yeah. So uh, not, to, not to typecast everybody, but uh, it is a strong current. And that uh, the... Um, that, basic habit, it's, it's like a very, very strong habit, an assumption that gets woven into things, that you're, you're bad and you're wrong and you should be scolded, uh, and that goodness is going to come from somewhere outside you. It's not going to come from inside you. And that, um, so that, that takes a lot of unpicking, un deconditioning. I'd say that Confucianism also gives that kind of, uh, sorry, Confucianism gives someone like me, a Chinese ascent, that rides wrong. But my final sort of thing about Mara Hiriotapud is people, could, could, people often say they feel fairly self-righteous, like saying, for example, here, I think um, LGBTQ people, lesbian, gay, uh, bisexual, transgender, queer people feel very welcome. But often people will say, oh, that's wrong. And, it, you know, so that sense that it's wrong, does that come from a misunderstanding of Hiriotapa? Or is that again Mara, or is it something else? It would depend on the individual and the the motivation in that moment. You can't generalize. Okay. So, but uh, it's never Hiriotapa, is it? That hot, that hatred for other people. Uh, Hiriotapa has got there's no aversion in it. It's pain. It works by being painful. It's it, there's no hatred in it. It's no it's no aversion. It's just, but it does its job by being uncomfortable. So hatred would be in that different, perhaps totally a different, different yeah. source. Okay, yeah. thank you very much. Yes, there's a question behind you, the gentleman in the blue shirt. Uh, thank you very much, Ajahn Amaru. I'm sorry, I probably missed up the first part of your talk. Um, came in late. Um, my question is um, keeping the five precepts precept at home and in the workplace. Um, it is very challenging, and uh, it's, it obviously is easier to practice in an environment here in a monastery with 
uh, and you know, living with people, surrounding with uh, good people. But in our society, um, we still see people try to avoid, you know, try to find a loophole. For example, they do say that again. Try to find a loophole. Oh, yeah, loopholes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> For example, avoid politician, you know, speech, speech. Or someone try to avoid paying tax, for example. In a workplace, if you say the five percent is good, but someone always um, take advantage over you, and uh, if you don't mind, and then you end up with uh, overwhelming, you just accept as it is. And I just just want to know in the society how how you see this as a Buddhist um, keeping the five percent. How you go about? Well, it's a good question. Uh, the simple answer is you do the best you can. The, uh, what I was saying about associating with good people, Sapuri Sangseva, that's the first of the supportive conditions for stream entry. And, uh, and so uh, when, when, but when I've emphasized that, people say, ah, oh, but Ajahn, you, you need to meet my family. <laughs> or, you should meet the people I work with. Uh, that, you know, we can't always choose who we associate with, but um, to a degree, I would say we can. Like, who do you choose to spend time with? Who do you draw close to? Um, and to a degree, we can't. You know, who are you going to stand next to on the tube? You know, and uh, you know, who uh, you've, you've signed a contract and someone is your boss, and okay, they're, <laughs> they're your line manager, so that's who you have to relate to because that's the job. So to a degree, we, we, we can't control it. To a degree, we can. But uh, it's also the degree to which we really let someone into our heart or let someone get to us. And so if we're in a situation like you, someone in your family is, is dishonest or cruel, and that uh, you ha- then uh, if you're in the, f- in the family together, then it's a challenge. Okay, how, how do I not associate with this person who's a, a close relative? Um, so... It's neither pushing away nor grasping hold, but uh, to to the degree possible, just keeping your relationship respectful and functional, and just not let, not letting their choices affect you. You're obviously connected. You're related. If someone's breaking the law or harming other people, then you have to consider: Well, do you tell the authorities or not? Or do you tell the person? Look, I can't turn a blind eye to what you're doing. Um, Sometimes it's much more blurry than that. But uh, oftentimes when someone is uh, uh, upsetting or or, uh, burdensome to us, we spend more time thinking about the people that we dislike and have got problems with than the people that we do like and are beneficial. We carry the problematic people around. And so we're actually creating them. We're giving them energy. We're We're giving that person strength in our life by thinking, he shouldn't do that, how can he do that, that's terrible. <laughs> so you're, you're actually investing in that person and giving them strength in your life by the amount you carry them around internally. So it's not just a matter of not talking to them or, or uh, avoiding them socially or, or keeping it clinical when you talk, it's also the amount we carry people around within us. And that uh, the... Um, that takes a bit of training, a bit of practice in meditation, uh, but it, it helps enormously to not be carrying people around or to be noticing when you think, oh, I'm spending half my day thinking about that bloke. <laughs> okay, so 
the, take note of that. Do I really want to build my life around this this person? And to to do what you can to to let go. And then the uh, it's sometimes the livelihood that we have. When I lived in California, there was a whole group of uh, a Buddhist lawyers group in San Francisco. So there was a lot of conversation about the fourth precept, the right speech, you know, not lying. So, Ajahn, according to California law, a lawyer has to vigorously defend the, innocent, the interests of their client. So, vigorously defend the interests. So, Ajahn, sometimes, you know, <laughs> many conversations about how to be a lawyer and not tell lies. And... Um, and so that the uh, uh, it was sort of interesting discussions. I mean, lawyers are chatty people, <laughs> often. So interesting discussions. But um, often, what the outcome was was that people went from from being a, like a, a, a criminal prosecution lawyer to doing pub, being a public defender. You know, like doing a, they would there would be a lawyer for people who couldn't afford lawyers. It was available to to um, be making a case for people who were uh, who hadn't got the financial resources to to run a court case for themselves. But uh, yeah, it's challenging if that's the very the very job that you've trained and signed up to is your 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 skill is being manipulative with your speech or economical with the truth, as a, a British parliamentarian famously once put it. I wasn't lying; I was merely being economical with the truth. Trying to make it sound like a virtue, like being economical with the truth. So, that uh, uh, people make their own choices about the jobs uh, that that they have. I don't make those choices for people. But if you're in a situation where, uh, then this is it's a sort of daily struggle to keep the precepts and you know, live in a, a skillful way, then uh, then the um, then it's useful to think. Well, okay. Do I have to be in this livelihood? Do I have any other choices? Because what what I'm doing, uh, the livelihood I'm, I'm doing at the moment, doesn't seem to have any way around compromising my conduct. And so, uh, should I think about some, doing something else? So, uh, and I, I feel it's it's skillful to uh, to look at things in that way. It does, sometimes, even though you might be in some kind of um, Challenging situation, or might seem to be quite a destructive situation. Sometimes, you know, you can be a force for good within that. So, yeah, it's a bit of an extreme example, but many, many years ago, I met Bill Ford, who was, uh, um, he had been, uh, he was a CEO of the Ford Motor Company at that time. And, uh, it was interesting because he was a sort of, a, a, a kind of liberal minded, uh, friendly sort of fellow. And so at the beginning, the family only trusted him to look after the charitable activity. It's like, well, just give him the charities because he's, no, he's not a, a hard-edged executive. But eventually, because he was such a nice guy and so honest and reliable, that he kept saying, well, look, Bill could do it. You know, Bill could do it. So eventually he got appointed the CEO of the whole company for some time because he was trustworthy and uh, and uh, and he and really a caring person when they had a um uh, a disaster at the um uh i think the rouge river uh, plant uh he as he went straight out to the plant uh, it was a huge accident people were, were workers were injured there 
And he, he went straight to the plant. And they said, no, you're the CEO. You can't do that. You've got to keep a distance. He said, shut up. I'm going. <laughs> so uh, I met him. I was introduced to him through someone in the Buddhist group in Michigan, in the Detroit area. And, uh, and so he was quite torn about being the chief executive officer of a giant you know, company, automobile manufacturing company. You know, with pollution and, and um, the... Uh, the whole economics of Ford Motor Company and such like. And so uh, so here I am, a Buddhist monk. I'm invited into his home and we're chatting. And I think he wanted me, he was saying, well, what I'd really like to do is to go off to Vermont and live in a cottage in the woods and bring my kids up you know, in, a, in a Waldorf school growing, and growing carrots and, <laughs> carrots and cabbages you know, in, a, in a vegetable garden. That's what I really like. And uh, I think he was expecting me to say, yes, good idea. You know, bail out of the whole Ford Motor Company and go and uh, go and grow carrots and, and and cabbages and live in the Vermont countryside. But uh, to his surprise and kind of my surprise too, I said, "Well, you know, you are in a position of great authority and responsibility, so perhaps you can do some good within the Ford Motor Company. Yeah, you're a very kind person. You're very compassionate, very thoughtful. People really trust you. You're very honest, uh, and so." Perhaps that's something that you can help introduce in uh, a more of a give more strength to in in Ford Motor Company. So I think he was a little bit disappointed. With <laughs> you could be the bodhisattva of, of the Ford Motor Company, and um, that uh, he was. Uh, I, I wasn't sort of going along with his yes, go after go after Vermont and grow grow carrots, but uh, I did feel it was a very strong intuitive feeling, like someone like that. If they're given a position of, of authority, then they can be a, an influence for a lot of good. They can they can uh, um, put things in place that affect a lot of people in a very beneficial way. And so, uh, he, he's not the CEO anymore. He did it for I think about ten years and then stepped down. But uh, during that time, I did notice that he managed to bring in a few uh, uh, kind of helpful, skillful changes. He, he blew people's minds at the AGM. Apparently, he said. He began his speech by saying, yeah, Ford Motor Company is not about making vehicles. So then I think the people in suits were very anxious at that moment. He said, uh, really, what I, what I see that we're doing is trying to help people get, get where they want to go. Isn't that right? Words to that effect. I can't quote him exactly. But uh, I thought, well, good job. Yeah, well done. That, uh, he is taking that position of, of trust and authority and just trying to, using that to steer things in a bit of a more helpful direction, to some degree. So sometimes in the workplace, even if it's a challenging situation, uh, rather than just bailing out because we've got difficult people to work with, perhaps our ethics and our standards can be something that is helpful to others in the workplace. Maybe we don't even realize you know, if you if you tell your, I, mean, I don't know about what your workplace is like, but if you say to your friends, oh, "I'm thinking of, of quitting," they, say, they might say, "Oh, don't go! You're the only sane person here. You know, <laughs> without you, it's going to be dreadful." You know, oh, really? I, I'm not I'm trying to project you know, onto your workplace. I have no idea what it would be, but sometimes it's like that. So it's not just what we get from the workplace or how it affects us, but we're also our standards affect the people around us. And like I was saying earlier about Abhayadana, you can be a blessing to the people around you. 
uh, and without even realizing it. I mean, not going around like, I'm a blessing to you. you know, you're so lucky to have me working with you. you know, like uh, the kind of egotistical statement. But rather just seeing that, that our standards can have a beneficial effect on people. And that it's, it's not just a one-way thing. So four o'clock has come around, so I will leave it there for today. And thank you for your attention and your good questions. And uh, this is the last of the Sunday talks for this year. So uh, they will begin again at the start of the Vasa next year. But there are other talks on the moon days and other times. So please do come along and make, this, uh, make use of this fine place as and when you wish. Have a good day.